Welcome to Music History Monday for December 7th, 2020. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title of today's podcast is The Worthy and Unworthy, From High Taste to Low, Prince Josef Lobkowitz, and some number one songs that will live in infamy. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We have three items on our calendar-driven agenda today, which also happens to be the 79th anniversary of the Japanese surprise attack at Pearl Harbor on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. One of these items is a birth, one of them is a recording session, and one of them notes some songs that will live in infamy. We begin with the recording session. On December 7th, 1967, 53 years ago today, Otis Ray Redding Jr., 1941 to 1967, entered the recording studio of Stax Records in Memphis, Tennessee, and recorded Sittin' on the Dock of the Bay. Redding had written the first verse of the song while staying on a houseboat at Waldo Point in the San Francisco Bay Area town of Sausalito, which I am presently looking at as I record these words from across the bay in Oakland. The song went on to become his greatest hit, something, tragically, the 26-year-old Redding never lived to see. He was killed in an airplane crash just three days after the recording date, on December 10, 1967. Redding's whistling at the conclusion of the song, just before the fade-out, is what musicians call a slug, filler, to be replaced with words at a later session. That session never took place, and the whistling stayed. Knowing Redding's tragic fate, he left a wife and four children behind. That whistling tugs at my heart. It's a wonderful song. I bought the 45 RPM when I was 13 years old. To this day, I cannot listen to it without getting choked up from all the memories and feelings it evokes. Redding was no one-hit wonder. Aretha Franklin's signature cover of his 1965 song, Respect, remains one of the classics of soul. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay topped the charts, both as a single, that is, as a 45 RPM record, and then as an album of posthumously released Redding songs. Top the charts. It's a phrase we use all the time, one that we will now properly define. In the United States, that chart is the Billboard Hot 100, the standard music industry list published weekly by Billboard magazine that ranks songs according to record sales, radio play, and today digital downloads and online streaming as well. To be at the top of the chart means a song was ranked number one for a given week, Sunday through Saturday. The first Billboard Hot 100 chart appeared on August 4, 1958. The first number one song was Poor Little Fool 
by Ricky Nelson. As of today, I'm recording this on December 6th, 2020, the Billboard Hot 100 has featured 1,114 different songs as being number one. The list of top flight performers who have never had a number one song will surprise you. It certainly surprised me in the course of my research. That list includes Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, James Brown, Credence Clearwater Revival. They had five number twos, bummer guys. Sheryl Crow, MC Hammer, the Pointer Sisters, Pat Benatar, Nicki Minaj, Kurt Cobain slash Nirvana, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Kiss, Green Day, Bob Marley, and Johnny Cash. If the catalog of A-listers that never got to number one surprises, then the list of mediocrities that did so should terrify, which brings us to the second of today's items. It was on December 7th, 1974, 46 years ago today, that the disco song Kung Fu Fighting began its astonishing two-week run as the number one song on Billboard's Hot 100 chart. Created and performed by the Jamaica-born singer-songwriter Carl Douglas, born 1942, Kung Fu Fighting was recorded in two takes in 10 minutes and was intended as a B-side for a song titled I Want to Give You My Everything. Kung Fu Fighting went viral long before the word viral was used in this context. It wasn't just number one in the United States, but in Australia, Austria, Belgium, Canada, France, Ireland, Netherlands, New Zealand, South Africa, the UK, and West Germany as well, selling some 11 million records worldwide. It's hard to tell what's worse. The song's idiotic lyrics, its stereotypical faux-oriental musical riffs, or the simple fact that it's a disco song. Popular taste is a fickle, even random thing, and thus a list of the relatively undeserving performers who have charted at number one reads like a who's who of who. We're talking here about such luminaries as Jimmy Glimmer and the Fireballs, who scored five weeks at number one for their song Sugar Shack in 1963. Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods, five weeks at number one for Billy Don't Be a Hero in 1974. Los Del Rio, 14 weeks at number one for Macarena Bayside Boys Mix, 1996. Look, the internet is filled with posts and links to what are considered by the writers of those posts to be the worst number one songs. Just Google that phrase, the worst number one songs. I, for one, have found reading some of these posts and watching and listening to the songs most entertaining. I cannot conclude this post on such a low artistic note. So from the unworthy to the worthy, from low taste to high, we mark the birth on December 7th, 1772, 248 years ago today, of Josef Franz Maximilian, 7th Prince of Lobkowitz 
in the Bohemian town of Raudnis nad Labem, about 25 miles north of Prague. For our information, Wikipedia lists Lobkowitz's birth as having occurred on December 8th. The New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians lists his birth as December 7th. Which source would you go with? Exactly. Me too. The Good Prince was one of those indispensable people without whom art cannot be created, a person of means who, as a patron, underwrote the composition of some of the greatest music of all time. To call him a music aficionado is to understate matters by several orders of magnitude, give or take. Lobkowitz himself was an accomplished musician, a singer, a bass, as well as a violinist and cellist. According to his friend, the Countess Lulu Thurheim, quote, this prince was as kind-hearted as a child and the most foolish music enthusiast. He played music from dusk to dawn and spent a fortune on musicians. Innumerable musicians gathered in his house, whom he treated regally. In his palace, the door was open to artists and the dinner table was laid uninterruptedly. He himself composed several operas and, although he walked with a crutch, he took an active part in their performance. Even though he was a spendthrift, his purse was open to all and sundry who called on him for help." Unquote. As a member of the Gesellschaft der Associierten, an association of music-loving noblemen founded by Mozart's patron, Baron Gottfried van Swieten, in 1786, Lobkowitz played a key role in producing the premier performance of Joseph Haydn's oratorio, The Creation, in 1798. In 1799, he commissioned Haydn to compose a set of six string quartets. Haydn's ill health precluded him from composing all six quartets, but the two he did complete, his final string quartets, as it turned out, were published as his Opus 77. Along with Prince Karl Lischnowski and Archduke Rudolf Johann Josef Rehner, Prince Lobkowitz was Beethoven's most important patron. Beethoven arrived to stay in Vienna in late 1792 and likely met Lobkowitz fairly soon after. By March of 1795, Beethoven was concertizing in Lobkowitz's Viennese townhouse his palace, which was and remains one of Vienna's grandest buildings. Built between 1685 and 1687, it was purchased by the Lobkowitz family in 1745. It remained in the family's hands until 1980, when it became the property of the Austrian government. Today, it houses the Art History Museum and a concert hall. Lobkowitz put his house orchestra at Beethoven's disposal. Beethoven tried out his Symphony No. 3 at Lobkowitz's palace with Lobkowitz's orchestra in April 1804, a full year before its public premiere. Oh, for the pleasure of having it performed privately in his home, Lobkowitz gave Beethoven the extremely generous gift of 1,800 florins, gold pieces, back when a florin was a florin. 
Beethoven also had Lobkowitz's house orchestra perform a preliminary draft of his triple concerto, Opus 56. When, in 1808, it appeared as if Beethoven was going to be hired as court capellmeister to Jerome Bonaparte, Napoleon's youngest brother, Lobkowitz put together a consortium of patrons that offered Beethoven a pension of 4,000 florins a year, provided he stay in Vienna. Beethoven took the pension and did indeed remain in Vienna. For these and many similar acts of patronage, Beethoven made Prince Lichnowsky immortal by dedicating to him his six string quartets of Opus 18, composed between 1798 and 1800, the triple concerto for violin, cello, and piano in C major, Opus 56, 1803, his Symphony No. 3, The Eroica, Opus 55, 1804, the Symphony No. 5 in C minor, Opus 67, 1808, and his Symphony No. 6 in F major, The Pastoral, Opus 68, 1808. Wow. Prince Lobkowitz died on December 15, 1816, in the bohemian town of Trebon, what the Austrians at the time called Wittengau, at the age of 44. The day he died, December 15, 1816, was the day before Beethoven's 46th birthday. As birthdays go, it was most certainly not a good one for Beethoven, who lost in the prince one of his greatest friends and benefactors. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.